we are taking a journey through the Bible, uh, uh, kind of a unique series. When I tell other people in other churches and my other pastor friends, um, even staff here at Fellowship, uh, the question that I'm often asked is, have you ever seen anybody do this before? Uh, just take one book of the Bible, and the, que- the answer is no, I haven't. Um, and maybe it'll catch on, or maybe it'll just show itself to be not such a great idea. Uh, but I'm taking one book of the Bible um, every week, and we're getting ready to hit a long streak here where I'm going to be around, and we're going to make some progress uh, uh, through all of this. I'm going to do Ecclesiastes today, next week, Song of Solomon. I'm going to actually do a look back at the poetic books and a look forward at the prophetic books after that, and then we're going to hit the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, uh, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. We're going to just start cranking through all of those books, one book every week. But currently, we're dealing with the poetic literature. These are five books that deal with language and issues of the heart and soul. Um, we went through 17 historical books that really give us the historical background and, and kind of the narrative of the Old Testament. These five poetic books um, are, are not really advancing narrative. There's not a lot of geography we need to understand. There's not a lot of uh, chronology that we need to understand because they are focusing on some applicational things. These poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, all fit together Um, as poetic books, but there are um, four of them that are called wisdom books. Psalms doesn't really fit that wisdom category because it's much more about worship. Um, But I've kind of framed them all as um, they're they're a theology of something. They're kind of giving us a way to approach life, a theology of worship, uh, a theology uh, of of how do you just live your entire life. That's Proverbs, a theology of suffering and, and understanding and embracing God's sovereignty in the book of Job. Today we'll see in Ecclesiastes a little bit more of a philosophical book, a theology um, of, of a search for meaning. How do you find meaning in life? And then next week, a theology of passion and marriage, uh, all of these very real issues of, of the heart, issues of, of uh, how do I worship from my heart? How do, I, uh, how do I deal with suffering, the difficulties that I walk through in my life? How do I deal when my mind is just spinning? How do I deal with the most important relationship that I have? And so they're very practical, very, very, very practical. And perhaps because of that, I'm going to share something with you uh, that maybe will help you see the applicability of all of this because I hate all of these books. I really do. I hate, I hate all five of these books. I hate them. I hate them um, because they challenge me in some very clear and specific ways. Um, I, I hate the book of Job because Job requires me to trust when I don't understand. Many people say that Job is about suffering. I don't think it's about suffering because it doesn't answer any questions. It just says suffering happens. Job is about sovereignty. And all of my personality tests, by the way, tell me that I really, qua- I really crave understanding. Um, I, I, I want to figure things out. I want to take them apart and put them back together. I crave understanding. And in a, in a world and in a personality where I crave understanding, the book of Job says, suffering happens. You're not going to understand it. Trust God. Ugh, I hate that. Just hate that message. I hate Proverbs. <laughs> I hate Psalms, too, because I'm going to talk about first. Um, Psalms sets a standard I don't like to embrace, and that standard is this. Praise God in every situation. Um, 
praise God, and that's what happens. I'm going to do this in a couple of weeks and give you some very clear examples of how, how the psalmist praise God for who he is, they praise God for what he does, and they praise God even when they don't see him active in the world. Praise God in every situation. You know what? I don't like that because I want to complain and push my agenda. It's what I'd rather do. I'd rather complain. I'd rather say, here's how it should be, rather than saying, God, I praise you for who you are, what you're doing, and even when I don't see you. So I just, I hate the book. I hate the book of Proverbs because <laughs> Proverbs asked me to apply wisdom to every situation in life. It is really comprehensive. And I want a day off without consequences. That's what I want. I want, I want a day off when I don't have to be on my game and it's okay. There's no consequences when I'm not on my game. But Proverbs teaches me, you apply wisdom every situation you have. Um, I hate Ecclesiastes that we're going to talk about today because Ecclesiastes asked me to hold life in tension. That's what we're going to see. A quest for meaning, there's going to be this tension um, that we have to, to live with to, to say, I see good, I see bad, I, I, don't, I don't see the end of it. I'll try to make that more clear. But I want a world that functions in simple categories. This happens and then this happens. Just tell me how many times a week I need to mow my lawn. I've got Zoisha lawn. It's frustrating me a little bit these days. And all I want is somebody to tell me, do I mow it once a week? Should I bag it? Should I not bag it? You're only supposed to mow it just a little bit. Well, how much is a little bit? I mean, I can mow it a little bit every day. Mr. Kendrick down the road, he mows his a little bit every day. I want some simple, somebody just tell me when to mow the lawn. I want simple categories. I don't want to live with all the tension that the book of Ecclesiastes demands we live with. And what we're going to see next week is, boy, I really hate Song of Solomon. <laughs> Dawn has told me, I'm going to be so glad when you're finished preparing for Song of Solomon. Um, Song of Songs invites me to embrace mystery and vulnerability in the midst of my most important relationship. That's what Song of Solomon says. It's a mystery. You're not going to figure each other out, but you need to be vulnerable in the middle of that. You know what? That's not what I want. I want something I can manage and a place I can hide. It's what I want in my relationship. I want to be able to manage it and just say, if I do one, two, and three, you're okay with me, right? Well, no, that worked last week, but this is this week. What? And I want a place where I can just hide. I can go, yeah, I, I blew it. And all of these other things, you know, I didn't live with the tension. I wanted a day off. I did push my agenda. You're okay with that, right? You're not. I hate Song of Solomon. I just hate it. Um, Ecclesiastes, though. Ecclesiastes is a, is a strange book, a very, very strange book, okay? Uh, I'm going to introduce you to this with a number of quotes, and I just want to make my point that Ecclesiastes is a strange book. Um, a, a number of commentators, they all say a similar thing. Uh, Dan Estes says this, Ecclesiastes has long been regarded as the most enigmatic book in the Bible, very difficult to understand, confusing. Um, Bruce Waltke says the book of Ecclesiastes is the black sheep of the canon of biblical books. In fact, there were arguments as to whether it should be included or not. <laughs> David Hubbard says anyone who thinks the book of Ecclesiastes is easy to understand has not read it yet. I agree with that. Here's my favorite quote. It comes from Derek Kidner. His little commentary on Ecclesiastes is one of the best things you could get if you're looking for a commentary on Ecclesiastes. It's called The Message of Ecclesiastes. Derek Kidner's first chapter is titled this way. What is this book doing in the Bible? A reconnaissance. 
What, are we, what have we got going on here? The book is very difficult to outline. It's very difficult. Uh, in fact, there, there is a bit of an outline, but I'm going to give you something else that I think helps you orient uh, yourself to the book. So it's, it's enigmatic, it's difficult, it's controversial, but I'm going to make it really simple and clear because that's what I like to do. So let me present to you what I think is going on in this book, okay? In the book, there is a quest. Um, There is a quest, and and, and it's a quest to find meaning in life. It is a very philosophical, exploratory book to find meaning in life. That has led um, the quester, which is what uh, Eugene Peterson would call him, it has led him to ask a question, and that is, what is the purpose of our work? Why are we doing what we're doing? What's the end of all of this? What's the purpose? The answer, and this is so frustrating, the answer is only God knows. We don't know. (laughs) And you'll never know. Um, Which leads him to a conclusion. Life is mysterious. It's enigmatic. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's vanity. He uses this word I'm going to talk about later, havel. Havel, havel, havelim. Meaningless, meaningless, meaninglessnesses. He, he, he repeats that so many times in the book, it just gets annoying because that's his conclusion as he's trying to figure out meaning in life and going, what's the purpose of all of this? It feels like only God can uh, figure it out. And so the conclusion is it seems meaningless, but then he ends the book and he scatters throughout the book two pieces of advice. Number one, enjoy your life as a gift from God. You're not going to figure it out, so enjoy the good things. And balance that with this, Fear God and keep his commandments. Let me take you on this journey real quickly. Um, The quest, Ecclesiastes 3.11, the quest is is scattered through there. I'm just going to highlight some verses. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. By the way, that sounds kind of good. You've got eternity in your heart. Great. No, it's a problem. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We have eternity in our hearts. You can't shut this down. You're trying to get an eternal perspective, all of us. Now, some of us have said, well, I figured out an eternal perspective, and here's how it works. But the reality is life is pretty complicated, and and all of us have eternity in our hearts, and he's going to call that a burden. To have eternity in your hearts, seeking a perspective that says, what does all of this mean? That's something God has set in our hearts, and it puts us on this quest, um, which leads us to a question. He he introduces the question early in the book in chapter 1. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do you get? What's the purpose? What's the end of all of this? Now, uh, by the way, I want to put something to bed. A lot of people approach Ecclesiastes this way. They say, because he uses this under the sun thing, and he talks about futility, everything is meaningless under the sun. And what they say is, yes, that's right. Everything under the sun, S-U-N, is meaningless and frustrating. But if you're under the sun, S-O-N, then everything makes sense. Poppycock. Everything under the sun is still confusing, and I don't understand it. I don't understand why this works, why this doesn't work. Why are certain churches really big and certain churches closing their doors when the really big churches are not preaching the truth and the churches that are small and closing their doors are the ones that are preaching the truth? Why? I can't make sense of it. What's going to be the end of all my work? Um, what's got, you know, there, 
it's just so frustrating. And it doesn't matter. If you're a believer, you're still in, those, in that place. I'm going to demonstrate that to you in just a moment. Um, the question, he says this, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. This eternal perspective that you're craving in your heart, this, this, this desire to, to make sense of it all, it's a heavy burden, and we can't escape it. That leads to an answer. <laughs> the verse from before. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The answer, only God knows. You don't know. You're not going to figure it out. You can't escape it. It's a burden. God has placed this eternal craving for meaning in your heart, but only God knows the, underst- knows the answer. In chapter 8, he makes it even more clear. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep, day or night, then I saw that all that God has done, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise can claim they know, they can't really comprehend it. You may think you figured it out, but you haven't. Only God knows. Only God has the eternal perspective of what is going on. And the answer to the, to the book is not to say, okay, so I'm just going to let God take control. No, you can't do that. God set eternity in your hearts. You're going to always be wondering, why is that happening? Why is that happening? Why is this moving that direction? That's this quest to find meaning, which leads to this question. What's the purpose of all that we're doing? The answer is, only God knows. You can't know. And he's going to end with two pieces of advice after he reaches his conclusion. His conclusion that's repeated endlessly in the book. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. If only God understands, and I'm still trying to figure it out, (laughs) this feels meaningless. Uh, This word, meaningless, means vapor. You, you, you can kind of see it, but when you, try to, when you try to grab it, it's like chasing the wind, he says. You're never going to figure it out. It's, it's enigmatic. It's mysterious. It's difficult. It's fleeting. It's futile. I'm going to talk about the word specifically later. But this is his conclusion. Life seems empty, futile, meaningless, um, the, the, the word is rich in meaning, havel, havel, havelim, which leads him to two pieces of advice. Here's his one piece of advice, scattered through the book, emphasized because he scatters it through the book. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each man may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Enjoy what you can. Uh, this is one of the reasons that people are like, hey, should this book be in there? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. He doesn't say that. Although he does say, you don't know when you're going to die. Everybody's going to die. I mean, here, here's Ecclesiastes. Work real hard, and then you'll die, and give your money to your kids who will probably squander it. There you go. That's Ecclesiastes. So you might as well enjoy what you can enjoy. And he repeatedly says that as his advice through the book. Um, But then he concludes the whole thing 
in chapter 12 when he says this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every um, deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Enjoy your life as a gift from God, but balance that out with this. Enjoy or obey God and fear him because he's going to judge what you do. So enjoy everything you can, recognizing however you enjoy, whatever you enjoy, you're going to be accountable for how you lived your life. I think this is what's going on. I I have another way to present this. I think there's um, an image that arises, and Dan Estes kind of sets me up here. By the end of the book, the reader has walked imaginatively with Kohelet. I'm going to talk about who that is. That's the author of the book on his tangled paths and into the secure footing of his resolution. You've kind of followed this guy. Um, Whoever whoever the author is, probably Solomon, but it's not clearly identified as Solomon. Um, I'm going to talk about the author in just a minute. Whoever the author is, is, he's taking you on a journey with him. And it seems to me that the book is kind of like this hallway with doorways in it. Here's how I think you should kind of imagine working through the book of Ecclesiastes. I think Ecclesiastes starts off where um, Kohelet, the teacher guy, probably Solomon, um, he basically says, hey, come on, I had a lot of money, I had a lot of power, I had a lot of wisdom, I was the king in Jerusalem, I had time, I had opportunity, I had resources, and it allowed me to figure out if there's meaning anywhere in life, and I searched for it all over the place. Let me show you some of the doorways that I searched through. And he takes you on this journey, and he says, listen, I, I looked in the doorway of achievement, and you know what I look? I, I've made all kinds of achievements, and, and look, look what's in that room. It's empty. But that's not the only thing I did. I, I, tried, um, I tried deep relationships, and you know what? Open the door. It's empty. I tried, um, I tried to find wisdom. You know what's in there? empty. I tried to find folly. (laughs) Empty. I tried pleasure. Empty. Every now and then he'll he'll open a door and he said, I found some, um, I found some wise observations there. Three people working together is better than two people working together. I figured that out, but that didn't give me meaning in life. It's a vacuous room. And he just takes you down this hallway through 12 chapters to say, every place I went, and I had more money and time and resources than you've got, Every one of those doorways, they're empty. So, here's what he says. (laughs) Let me tell you this. You're never going to figure meaning out. I had more time, more resources, more energy, more opportunity than you. But you're still going to keep trying. You're never going to figure it out. So, enjoy the gifts you can and fear God and keep his commandments because you'll be accountable to him one day what I think he does. When he gets to the end of the hallway, he doesn't have a magic door at the end where he goes, oh, here's where there's meaning. Um, What he does is he gets to the end and he goes, you know, you're never going to figure this out. So enjoy what you can and fear God and keep his commandments. Let's get into our kind of movements through the book. This is more of the stuff on the outline. Um, Who's writing? When's it being written? Where are they and why is this book put together? Uh, the writer is identified, and sometimes you'll see it in your, uh, in your Bibles this way, as his name is Kohelet. Um, it's called the teacher or the preacher. Um, 
And, and the, the idea of this word is, is our English title is Ecclesiastes because it comes from the Greek title of the book, which means the assembly, the doctrine of the church assembled is ecclesiology. So this is an assembly, but this guy in particular is a guy who, who teaches the assembly. He brings people together, and then he authoritatively teaches. Um, he, he says his, his name is the teacher, is probably what you'll have in your English Bibles. He's the teacher. He's the preacher. Um, he's, the, um, he's the speaker, is what's going on here. But it's the guy who's who's gathered the assembly to give an authoritative message to say, hey, here's what I found out. So who composed it? The book was composed probably by this unnamed narrator. It's actually, if you read closely, you'll see at the very beginning of the book and at the end of the book, there's a narrator who's saying, hey, um, I gathered together the musings of this Kohelet guy, who I think is probably Solomon, because he identifies himself as king in Israel, a son of David, and with a lot of wisdom. That sounds like Solomon, but it never says he's Solomon. Okay, just want to be clear. It never says he's Solomon. Um, but a narrator has collected all of this. Just like in the book of Proverbs, a lot of those Proverbs were collected by, by Solomon. But we know from chapter 25 that Hezekiah collected some of the Proverbs as well. And then someone assembled it all together, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the book was composed by this unnamed narrator, we don't know him, who's gathered the musings of this Kohelet guy, the preacher, quester, teacher guy. He's gathered all that together, who's identified as the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and a man of considerable wisdom. We don't know who it is for sure. He sure looks like Solomon. But for some reason, they're not identifying him as Solomon. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. This is our word Kohelet. Not only was Kohelet wise... But he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teachers searched to find the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Some people will dismiss the book of Ecclesiastes and say, this is the one book that's kind of off. Like, this is what happens when you go off the rails. And they even say sometimes, well, Solomon went off the rails, and this is bad. No, I think what he wrote is, is right and true. You can explore all these doorways. You can explore all these rooms, but you're not going to find final meaning in any of them. Who's the audience? Well, if we assume Solomon is, is both the unnamed narrator and the author, because that may be true. Solomon may be setting this up as he's the unnamed narrator who's quoting himself. Um, then the audience would have been the nation of Israel during the United Kingdom under Solomon's time, 931, around that time. If the unnamed narrator and the author are not the same person, there's some the guy at the very beginning at the end of the book who is just reflecting on stuff that Solomon wrote, then the audience would have been the nation of Israel during the divided kingdom, maybe even after they came back from exile when they were exiled. Um, if you'll remember, they're exiled to the Babylonians and then Ezra and Nehemiah bring them all back. It's once they are back is perhaps when uh, all of this was collected. Um, when? Well, the book was either assembled during the reign of Solomon likely near the end of his life prior to 931, or it was assembled sometime after his death. That, that's kind of what we know. Around the time of Solomon is when all of this is taking place because it seems like it's collecting some musings that were around by him. Where was it written? 
Regardless of who the narrator is and when the book was assembled, the audience is living in the promised land, either during the United Kingdom or perhaps after the exile and the return. Here's the point I want to make. This book is written for believers who are trying to make sense of life. And you're going to continue on your own quest, but here's a guide to help you down the road. The book is written for believers, part of the covenant community. This is not a philosophical book that should be at Barnes and Noble in the philosophy department, and you should keep yourselves away from it. This is a a book that is upright and true. It's got honest things to say. It's inescapable that we're trying to get an eternal perspective. You want to know, why am I getting up this morning? Why am I investing in that? Why can't somebody invent a fertilizer that makes grass green but not grow? Why can't they do this? I'm so frustrated. I need green grass that won't grow. It's called turf. I understand. This book is written for us, folks. It's written for us because on some continuums, many of us ponder these things more. Sometimes people ponder them less. But there's something in every single human heart that is trying to figure out life. So why was it written? He makes it really clear in chapter (laughs) 3. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. I'm writing this so that you will fear God. So that you'll orient your life in your quest to figure it out. Ultimately, finally, you'll land with, I respect God. I'm going to orient my life under the fear and the obedience of him and the enjoyment of the gifts that he's given us. This this book is, is directing us to have a proper relationship to God. So, how does all of this happen? Uh, Merrill Unger says this, Ecclesiastes is perhaps the most perplexing and confusing book of the Bible to the average reader. Reasons? It's spirit of hopeless despair depicting the emptiness and disappointment of life, which is not the only thing that it does, but it does that really, really well. I mean, it is super good at doing that. Number two, it's lack of a note of pay, praise or peace in contrast to other wisdom literature or scripture. It never kind of settles it and just goes, and so do you see? Everything's good. Life under the sun, really frustrating. But life under the sun, that's great. It never does that. And three, it seems to sanction a conduct at variance with the rest of Scripture. Eat, drink, enjoy your life as a gift from God. Um, I think the advice it gives is exactly what we need to hear. A lot of you in this room need to hear, enjoy your life, folks. It's not just utter misery, Enjoy your life. Now, those of you who are going, yeah, you need to hear. (laughs) Obey God and keep his commandments. Because you're going to face him in judgment. You'll be responsible for your actions one day. And for all those of you who are going, that's right. They're going to be responsible for their actions. What I want to tell you is, hey, lighten up. Enjoy your life. These things have to be held in tension. And I hate that tension. I want it to be simple. 
Danny Hayes says this, Ecclesiastes is a story about the teacher's intellectual search for meaning in life using the tools of wisdom, observation, reflection, correlation. Unfortunately, wisdom does not give him any satisfactory answers for ultimate meaning. It merely provides good intellectual tools with which to see the problems and inconsistencies in life. The teacher wants to understand life and be able to come up with an overarching framework from which he can understand all of life, even the incongruities. In this, he fails. And this is one of the main subpoints of the book, as it is for Job. We're never going to figure it out. Why do people suffer like Job? We'll never, the book doesn't answer it, but it does say God's sovereign. Why can't I figure out what's going on in life? Well, you never will. But God's in charge. God's got a plan. How's Ecclesiastes organized? Um, gosh, it, it really feels much more like random doorways that he's, uh, you know, pleasure, empty room, accomplishment, empty room, uh, wine, women, and song, empty room, um, uh, achievements, empty room. All of that, that feels more like how it's organized, but there is a little bit of an outline. He introduces what he's doing in 1, 1 to 11. That gives you kind of the frame. And then there's two movements where he is um, going through all of those empty rooms. One really focused on human achievement and one focused on some wise principles that he discovers, but they still don't solve the problem. And then he comes to the final conclusion and he says, at the end of the matter, here's what you need to do. Enjoy your life fear God and keep his commandments. Um, The chart that I have out at the Connection Center um, puts all of this together. You've got this introductory thing up at the beginning. Uh, Then you've got one movement where he does all of the things he tried to accomplish. And then in his mind, all of the things he tried to sort out. And then his conclusion at the end, at the end of the matter, fear God, keep his commandments, and enjoy your life as a gift from God. I've got a number of handouts out at the Connection Center, uh, one of them by Roy Zook. One of them actually... Um, is interesting just for the fun of it all. Um, I wrote it when I was dating Dawn. Um, So I put her picture on it too. So it's got a picture of me and Dawn in the little picture spot. Um, But I wrote this back in 1985. I was teaching a Bible study, and for some weird reason, I thought I should teach Ecclesiastes. And I put a little summary of Ecclesiastes together um, in 1985. And what I pulled out of my files had 1985 on it. I adapted it just a little bit, but can you believe Dawn's been putting up with me talking like this since 1985? Oh my gosh, what a wonderful woman. I can't wait to get to Song of Solomon and say, she's the model of patience. Um, But the book is surrounded by this, um, grounded in this book, this keyword, Havel. And I actually have two things out there on that one word. What What is this Havel, Havel, Havelim mean? I'm going to talk about it for just a minute, but I've got two entire handouts out there. This term Havel is repeated five times in verse two. Um, The noun Havel is the key word in Ecclesiastes. The root is used in two ways, literally and figuratively. And here's basically what it means. Literally, it is a puff of wind. It's a vapor. Um, It's something you can see, but you can't handle. That's the literal usage. That sets up the figurative usage that is things in life that are enigmatic. They're mysterious. I don't understand them. I can't get my mind around them. I try to explain them, and then they're gone. I, I get close to it, and then it's, 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 it moves away. It's vanity. It's empty. It's futile. Um, 
I think if I had to choose one word, although it's very hard to put in sentences, it's enigmatic. (laughs) What is that? I I can't pull myself together for all of it. Um, Read the handout out there on this word. Um, Life is meaningless. I don't think I have to give you much coaching on enjoying your life as a gift from God. There's some good gifts. Enjoy them. Enjoy the good gifts. Enjoy them responsibly with the reverential fear of God. And I've talked about this again and again. The reverential fear of God is a fear that both attracts and terrifies. Um, It is being at Niagara Falls where this immense destructive force is there. And if you got under it, it would kill you. But you want to get as close as you can. It's this magnificent draw. God is that. He's this magnificent draw. But recognize, he's a consuming fire. I'm drawn to the consuming fire. It brings warmth and light, but it can also destroy. It's the reverential awe of God. So the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to lead the wise person to humbly fear the Lord and enjoy his good gifts in light of mankind's inescapable search for meaning, which can never be satisfactorily and fully completed. You're never going to figure it out. On my chart out there, and I've got charts for all of these books as I'm developing one by one, this preacher, teacher, Koheleth, carefully chose wise words to describe his experience and reflections on life, demonstrating the futility the enigmatic nature of human endeavor in order to bring his readers to the conclusion that they should enjoy life, which is a gift from God, but above all else, they should remember that they must live their life with the fear of the Lord, knowing that God will ultimately judge them for their actions. Danny Hayes says some great things. So does Derek Kidner. So what, a, what do we do with all of this? Where does all this fit? It's an examination of the complexities of a search for meaning. It is a philosophical book that deals with it because the Bible's not shying away. The Bible's not a simpleton-filled book. These are complex issues, and, and it gets into it. It's a guided tour of a well-resourced, short, well, well-resourced search for making sense of life. Again, this Kohalith guy, probably Solomon, he's got power as a king, he's got money as a king, he's got wisdom as a gift from God, and he's got plenty of time. And he made the search for us. So what should we believe? Well, first of all, we will never escape a quest for making sense of the world. There's nothing, there's no pithy statement I can come up with. That's one of the reasons I don't like the statement, life under the sun is meaningless, but life under the sun is meaningful. I hate that because you know what? That doesn't really work. You're always going to have this quest, and only God understands what's going on, which is my second point. We'll never make sense of the world. You're never going to figure out why things happen. You're never going to figure out why those parents have successful kids, and those parents don't, because those parents look like they did all the right things. Those parents look like they did all the wrong things. You'll never understand. We parented these kids the same way, and one went that way, one went that way. Whoa. You're never going to make sense of all of this. But wisdom can guide us. Wisdom can take us through this. And and what wisdom tells us is that we should behave this way. Um, In the final analysis, two balanced conclusions should guide us. Enjoy your life as a gift from God. Fear God, keep his commandments. We're trying to make sense of life. (laughs) What does this mean? Only God really knows So for us, 
It's very elusive and mysterious and enigmatic. So what do I do with that? Enjoy the things I can enjoy, balance by, always obey God, and keep his commandments. So what are some next steps for how we, how we practice this? It's pretty simple. This is a very practical book, isn't it? I mean, what, what starts off as kind of this philosophical treaty, it's actually very, very practical. I would tell you, relax into the sovereign, good purposes of God, knowing you will never stop trying to make sense of the world. Keep trying. You can't stop. But relax into God's sovereign purposes. Go, he's got it figured out, and there's a purpose. And one day, I'll either know or not care. Secondly, enjoy your life as a gift from God. Enjoy the things you can enjoy and enjoy them responsibly. Fear God and keep his commandments as you embrace the mystery and you enjoy the gifts. That's where I think this book leads us. Father, we thank you for the variety of messages you give us in your word. This one really sticks out as unique. And Father, there may be some people who right now are um, trying to make sense of things going on in their life. And and we have people down front who will pray with them about that. And I pray that there would be a real sense of openness and freedom to come and say, I know I will never make complete sense of this, but I'd love for somebody to just pray that I could settle into trusting God in the middle of whatever I'm going through. Father, as we, um, in our families and in our communities, talk about all these things, I pray that we would be people who are enjoying your gifts and who are obeying your commands. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.